uh, we agreed to sort of make a deal to move on and then but we weren't able to resolve it it just didn't make any sense to be honest it was a colossal waste of time and resources uh, and we both ended up without uh, without the restaurant and so the restaurant just died there how did that feel yeah very very bad extremely bad like I said it took a very long time to get over it I still don't consider it resolved in the sense that I would still love to go back and, and uh, work in the original location. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Will hit another roadblock, but this wasn't the first one he faced. He was told by the best chefs in Paris to get out of the way that he'll never make it as a chef. Yet today, he stands as the number one pastry chef in the world, a rising star and a nominee for the James Beard Award for the best pastry chef in America. So I was in Bali for a month and was lucky enough to be invited to Will's restaurant, Room for Dessert. I was greeted with a 15-course meal with a wine pairing. I've literally never had a food experience like this. And it's because this wasn't just food. This was artistry. But before we dive into how Will created this incredible experience, let's start at the beginning and go all the way back to his childhood. My name is Will Goldfarb. I have a small dessert bar in Ubud called Room for Dessert. But also you're known as like one of the best pastry chefs in the world. Uh, I've had a good, uh, I've been lucky to have the respect of my peers in this industry, which is really valuable. And I think over the years that's, uh, uh, yeah, I've just been lucky to be, uh, to be recognized by, we're, we've always focused more on trying to tell a story with what we do. And even nowadays is less and less, it's still storytelling, but it's really more hospitality and taking care of people. And I think that we're just lucky that that's uh, resonated with people over the years. So it's been. 35 years in restaurants. So, you know, just getting, uh, trying to get another crack out of the next 10 for now. You invited me to your restaurant and like what I'd, I've never had an experience like that. So it was the most incredible food experience I've ever had. Awesome. Well, I'm very happy to hear that. Thank you. I'm so glad that you invited me into that world, but I kind of want to take it back to, um, before you were even in any kind of restaurant before. Sure. Can you describe what your high school friends were like? You know, my high school friends are still my closest friends, actually. The same friends that I walked to first grade with are, in fact, still living like the same distance away from each other, but now in Tribeca instead of in uh, Port Washington. Did you enjoy school? I enjoyed school. I was very motivated in high school to have more opportunities in college. It was very important for me to, to perform well enough to have more choices. Uh, like I just wanted to be able to choose where I wanted to go to school. So yeah. Did you have an idea of like what you wanted to do? Uh, from high school, my plan was always to go into law. So I thought, but there's no, I mean, in the States, there's no undergraduate law program. So you sort of have to pick a subject. I went with history, which was something I liked in high school. I, I really wanted to go somewhere warm. I was like obsessed with being able to wear shorts in the winter. I mean, we did tons of things together in high school, but a lot of, you know, probably a few more 
parties than I would have liked, uh, a little more studying than I would have liked. I tended to play a lot of sports in the afternoon, which sort of blocked my afternoons. And I had, a, uh, but I worked, uh, I probably was a busboy in a restaurant down the street from my house. 16, I think I upgraded to food runner in the next town over. And then, then 17 parking cars uh, at the golf club a little further away. So I sort of worked my way through restaurants, country clubs, front of house, golf courses, uh, back bars. Were you good at it? Do you like it? I was a horrible server, as I discovered <laughs> in college. I was a great busboy. I could carry a lot of stuff. Uh, I like to work hard. I was awful at um, multitasking. I mean, I'm still awful at multitasking, but I preferring to be a serial uh, monotasker. I was a great host, which I, st- found, I started working like at the door, but that's more in college. Uh, high school jobs were still more summer. Again, like parking a lot of fancy cars, destroying a lot of expensive clutches. And I mean, obviously you did pretty well in school and had like a decent balance because you got into Duke. Like what was that moment like for you? Did you think you had like your future in the bag? Uh, I was just happy to get there. I worked very hard. I, you know, we raised tens of thousands of dollars for leukemia society with a charity basketball game. I was the sports editor of the high school newspaper. I played sports three seasons, at least two seasons, if not three seasons. Uh, I, when I got into Duke, I was really happy because I really wanted to go somewhere great, but also fun. Uh, and Duke was really a great fit for me. What was your schedule like by the end of Duke? By the end of Duke, my schedule was working three jobs and Saturday, Sunday night, I had four classes of independent study. Wait, three jobs? Like, is it one in the morning, one in the afternoon, one at night? Like, how did you do all that? I worked mornings, afternoons, nights, and I what in three different restaurants. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not as, I was a lot younger. I didn't rest as much as I perhaps should have, or I have learned to later. Was working at that point about survival or was it? A, was was there some kind of passion brewing in these? I've been I've been lucky and fortunate enough to work for like towards something as opposed to mere as opposed to survival, uh, which has been great because it's it's just been it's been a big privilege for me. But there must have been something about this world that like really struck a chord because at the end of Duke you got accepted to law school and you deferred, right? And so it's like that seems like the very safe route, but there was something maybe pulling you? I, I always found it more appealing to do better quality stuff, which meant having to learn more, which appealed to me. So, you know, if you want to work on the floor of a fancy restaurant, you need to know about food, you need to know about wine, uh, you need to know about service. I really enjoyed that uh, aspect of it. And I think that that is what put me in the culinary direction because that wasn't my focus at all. I was only on the hospitality side. I didn't defer because I had questions about going to law school. I just didn't want to go to school again for another four years, like the week after I finished four years. But to be honest, high school, I'd been a little bit burned out. Probably college, I pro- blew off probably a little too much steam. Uh, but I I was lucky enough to get into the law school that I wanted to go. So I had a whole like surfing agenda planned to go to U- to go to USC. Uh, that was my dream at the time. That was really the only hub for IP law. And I just didn't want to go right to school. So I took a few months to go to Paris and then. But how did you find about like the Cordon Bleu cooking school? Was that when you were in Paris? Uh, I applied before I went. It was kind of my excuse like, oh, I'm going to go to school over the summer. You know, like in the programming when you're still like everything needs to be booked. I don't remember having a calendar then, but I remember the importance of being busy. 
I've tried to be more and more careful about what I choose to be busy with, uh, but I, I like being active. I, I enjoy it a lot. It keeps me fresh and relaxed. So your idea of being like, like taking a break was enrolling in culinary school? <laughs> yeah, I left school to avoid school and I signed up to school pastry and French actually. So I did French in the morning and pastry in the afternoon. And I worked in a restaurant at night. Busy guy. I mean, and this also, this is like what, this is a school founded in Paris in 1895. It like has like 20,000 students a year from a hundred different countries. It's like a massive institution. Like, like why did you apply to this program in particular? I was under, I really enjoyed working in kitchens, even though I had very limited experience, but it also felt very organic to me. Pastry felt very foreign and strange. And I felt that it would be really hard and that would keep me really interested. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm still think that it's really hard and it's keeping me really interested. So what were your expectations of this school? They had a really great program at the time, which was to do basic pastry in three weeks instead of 10 weeks, like intensive. So it was like 10 to 12 hours a day of class. I had a class in the morning before that, and I had to work job at night after that. Paris is amazing. This school was Cordon Bleu was a really great experience. I had a great uh, beginning pastry chef, great intermediate pastry chef, great advanced pastry chef. Uh, my advanced pastry chef is still uh, one of the, I mean, he has a shop in Paris called Petisserie Duchesne. Uh, he was instrumental in discouraging me from continuing uh, to cook. Did you have any like conversations with your professors that stick out? Like usually negative. Uh, it's pretty direct. I mean, you don't really... The nice thing of being in foreign countries is it's easy to be disapproved of or approved of because it just requires a face usually. So the quote that I have is go home, stop bothering us. It's easier if you're not helping. You'll never make a living as a pastry chef. I think there's a slight amalgamation of a couple of different people, but I appreciate the I appreciate the license. That's definitely aggregate, probably over a couple of years. Um, but I mean, if anything, they encouraged me. So that encouraged you. If I'm going to do something like foolish, then I'm just going to do it, and then I'd prefer to just figure it out as opposed to be uh, told what I can and can't do. I would love to dive into like some of the moments um, that shape some of these like these, these next transitions. Um, and I think like something that I would love to know is how did you, at the end of this program, what was it like to graduate? Like were, were there a lot of prospects or was it pretty grim? So the first summer I started working in a bistro, that was the pastry chef who wanted to take a holiday. Uh, and so he sort of enlisted me to cover his station while he was gone. And then when he came back, that he, he just encouraged me to move to another department where I couldn't ruin his uh, pastry department. That was what in did he a, say? just go away. Like that's again, in, it, I spoke like two words of French. It's very lonely if you don't speak the language. And at a certain point, I'm not sure if you have been in countries before where in, like your you don't speak the primary language or in a work environment. Uh, it's very much by a certain point, it just becomes noise. It's like, it doesn't matter. It could be music or pants clanging or someone yelling at you. It just doesn't really matter because you don't really understand what anyone's saying anyway. Why did you want to subject yourself to this? Well, I didn't feel like it was such a big deal. I, I was going in and learning something. So I, I don't know. I thought it was free school. I was actually being paid. Not a lot, but I mean, I, I like I, in the morning I was paying to go to school and in the night I was being paid to go to school. I thought that was a good trade-off. Were you making enough money? Uh, at that point... I was making not a lot of money. I negotiated a raise, which I got. Then I was approaching my intermediate class and I realized I kind of needed to 
like look up a bit, like, and not be a career like behind the stove at this restaurant. Did you have like an apartment at the time? Like, where were you staying? I lived in youth hostels for most of my time in Europe, but I had an apartment in Paris, maybe summer 97. I, I would always come home around holiday time and do, I worked for an event planner in Soho. I would come home, do a few parties. I mean, Europe was a lot cheaper back then. It's not like now. Uh, so I could come home and make it, make, uh, you know, a few hundred bucks a night and doing events like big holiday events in New York. And how did you find your way back to New York from Paris? Why did you leave? Oh, I just came back to work for a few weeks so I could make it through the next year. Uh, that was sort of my rhythm for five years. And that would be enough money for usually. Wow. How much were you making? Not a lot, but I mean, at the time, a couple of thousand dollars would get you through a year in Europe. Why didn't you want to stay in New York where you were making good money just for a few weeks? Again, pre-internet, pre-social media, the concept that you could like learn or absorb other information without experiencing it simply did not exist. Uh, if you wanted to go to El Bulli in 1998, I mean, that was, hadn't even been covered in magazines in English. How did you find out about El Bulli first? I went to a bookstore in Paris looking for a copy of Ma Gastronomy. The author is Fernand Point. And next to Fernand Point was Ferran Adria's first book. And I found that book and I was like, this is the, definitely the place to be. If you've ever seen the book or you ask anyone who has, it's like, it's just one of those things that's self-evident. It's just, it was just clearly a new and unique and distinctive voice, like as opposed to a century of work before it, which was... What was you new and unique about it from your eyes? Because like, I mean, you have like, you've been studying food or you were studying food for a while at that point. So like, if you were to just describe it to one of your peers. Yeah, I, I mean, it was a phenomenon. I, I wasn't the only person who discovered them in 1998. I mean, they were universally sort of revealed upon the world at that time. And they became the biggest restaurant in the world in the pre-social media ages. Um, and But at the time, again, you had to fly there. No one spoke English. And it was just a very specific world. That's almost incomprehensible now that you could have like an international tourist destination where nobody speaks your language. Um, that just does not exist anymore. But it did exist for a long time. And it certainly still existed in the 90s. The minute that you open the first book from El Bulli, it's like so evident, the distinction of the way of thinking. The look, I think, was interesting, but the look was less relevant. It was just a different way to organize uh, one's work around food, which basically for several hundred years had been performed in exactly the same way, which is brigade system from Escoffier system uh, into a new method of organization. I mean, now in social media age, it seems bizarre that there was a period 20 years ago when no one had heard of find out, you know, restaurants in Denmark, or no one had heard of restaurants in Lima, or no one had heard of restaurants in Barcelona. But that's not that that's 25 years ago. Was it just the organizational method of the staff, like the brigade system, like was what the... It's more the, I mean, the brigade system actually was similar. Uh, I mean, Ferran was inspired by French Nouvelle Cuisine as well, but the, the application of ideas on food and interpretation and translation of culture through food was unique and is still unique. I mean, you see in the last 25, I don't think there's been a similar uh, role in the last, I don't know, 250 years. So this was revolutionary, at least at least you saw it as revolutionary. I think it has been universally uh, acknowledged to be revolutionary, even among people who dislike. And I think you've seen the last, I mean, the influence for it, like, for example, Noma has picked up the baton from El Bulliet, you know, this idea of being the mega, mega number one. So did you want to taste it? Did you want to go like... 
Oh, I, I know. I drove there. Did you like drive immediately? Not immediately, but I was had to finish class. But I drove with whenever. As soon as I finished class, I drove. So you saw the book. You had class, and you're like, I need to go to this restaurant right now. Yes, in spring of '98, very directly. How did you get in? So it very inexpensive at the time. It was under 80 euros a person. At the time, the equivalent restaurant in Paris would have been three, four, five hundred euros, and it was about 80. And the principle was that if they could change the price, but then a certain category of person, a normal person would never be able to eat there. And that wasn't worth it. But in 1998, it was under $80 a person. At that point, actually, the euro was less than the dollar. So it was, I think it was 80 euros, which was like $74 or $76. What was your first experience there like? So it was great. I, we parked on the beach, slept in the car and then changed in the car and then walked across to the restaurant. It's a, it was a very unique place. It's a very, it's now a museum that's just opened uh, this last few weeks. And gorgeous location. At the time, the road on arrival was unpaved. It's a very particularly beautiful cove uh, in every way. It's exquisite and small. And un, I'm sure now, again, maybe a bit more spoiled, but relatively unspoiled. And the restaurant itself is quite casual. The food, again, is just was unlike anything that's been served before, in my opinion, or since. But there's certainly been a lot of inspiration that's been borrowed from there over the years, including from us. What was the taste like? Because, I mean, you've seen what it looks like. You see maybe how they created the food and what the system was. But. Well, but all the so the all the dishes were new from the what was in the book to what was being served because they changed the menu every year. So, uh, and I think they've published like libraries and libraries of plates. Uh, flavor wise, it was really exceptional uh, outside of the boundary of normal guideline of flavor, texture, temperature. Yeah, those are pretty important. Did you know you wanted to work there? Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, I didn't have any. I had already asked before I went. To work there? Yeah. What did they say? I wrote a letter probably the week after I got the book. I received a like, polite decline you know, because the season was already full. So then I just drove uh, and I went and I probably asked again and probably was declined again. You had a run in with an immigration officer uh, at some point. I think a bit later. I, I, I mean, frequently. I had a, in, in Roses, I had a run in with a police officer, but there were some poorly behaved agents of the law at the time who were not encouraged by my, my Chevy Blazer from, from New York and had a lot of free time. This individual had been suspended for poor decision making before he was bugging me, but he decided to keep bugging me. And actually, I was bailed out. But you got arrested? Not arrested, but let's say, you know, approached. I'm not sure if I, I don't think I was actually incarcerated, but I was definitely in the jail. I was in the police office. What did you do? <laughs> I accelerated up a hill uh, while he was coming down. And let's say I didn't instigate an accident, but I was accident adjacent. And then he was looking for a little handout, and which I made because I, I was just in a rush to get to work, to be honest. Like a bribe. Yeah, I was late for work. But Julie, who rest in peace, who's the owner, he actually retrieved the funds from there uh, and just made it clear that for them not to give me a hard time, which was very nice. So after that run-in, did you try to work for El Bully again? How did you end up? Oh, I was there. The I was on my way to work when I got... So how did you eventually get the job? I was in Italy at the time. So after, after I went there and visited there, I was cooking in the south of France for a couple that I'd started cooking with in Paris. Uh, and actually a guy who I'm still in contact with, I met in Bali a few years ago. So maybe 25 years later. It's a very small world in the industry. And I was working in Florence at the time, which is where I, so Florence, there was a moment where we were, the kitchen was being uh, investigated for, well, just who knows what, but let's say there were adequate a number of people that shouldn't really have been there. So we were sort of hiding in the office. 
And another restaurant actually that I've been back to recently. What was this restaurant? Chibreo in Florence. So, which is still there, still doing amazing. Again, Fabio just passed away, but his son is running it. So you had to hide because there were too many people working there. I mean, it's pretty standard in restaurants. It's been in every restaurant I've worked in for 35 years. So hiding, I mean, wherever, (laughs) whatever country you're in, uh, let's just say there's not free movement of labor, even if there's free movement of capital. So if that's true, then you frequently find people who are, let's say, economic migrants, much like I am now. And in that case, sort of, let's say on the edges of what would be considered appropriate. So you were working at this restaurant and then how did you decide to go to L? Well, I'd asked, as I mentioned, once or twice and I just called uh, when I was stuck in the office and they picked up and they said, sure. Why at that moment did you call? I was stuck in the office waiting for the waiting for... And you're just like, might as well call them again. Well, I was literally sitting next to a phone. So I didn't (laughs) didn't have a phone. Again, this must seem like the dark ages for people, but I didn't have a phone because no one had phones. So you were stuck and you're like, there's I was a sitting phone. next to a phone. And I want to work there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, simple as that. And why did they say yes at this point? I think they were happy and drunk. They was like the last day of the year in the restaurant. So they were looking ahead to the next year and they'd finished the season. They just got their third Michelin star. It was a very big year. So I just caught a lucky break. And so did they say, come in tomorrow, come in next week? Well, it, the, at the time they closed between uh, November and February. So they said, come in February because this was the first week of November. Did you get like a signed thing? Was it just a verbal agreement? I mean, you got to remember, like my CV was handwritten. Like what would they have sent? I didn't have a personal fax machine or a mobile number. So they, they said show up in February and you're just trusting. And a few months when you show up in February, you know, there's a, a very, there's a very funny joke in like a hot tub time machine about you know, how are you going to find someone without a phone? And it's like, well, I know again, it, may, it dates me, but you used to just go get stuff and go find stuff. It wasn't on a phone and maps were written, not digital. <laughs> but again, the whole point of the experience is just to go do it, right? So what was it like working there? Oh, it was great. Great place to work. Very intense. Why was it intense? Because the pressure to make things a certain way was uh, clearly articulated. How were those communicated? Was it yelling? No, it's. I know that uh, there, there. This wasn't a yelling kitchen. That experience is not really part of my formative experiences. It doesn't mean no one's ever lost their temper, but the majority of kitchens, despite whatever is reported, are pretty civil, and there are terribly behaved people in everywhere. And I think it's appropriate that they're dealt with. The, but in terms of the places that I've been, El Bulli was not like a, a yelling kitchen at all. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Did you feel respected there? Uh, I mean, at the end, like it, the, at the beginning, the, like how did you feel? It's all about the work. It's a merit-based system. Either you, you show up and do the work and everybody respects you or you don't. And then that means you cause more work for other people and then they don't respect you. Were you good at the work? Uh, no, at the hard work, I was good because I was a hard worker. And at the detail work, I was bad because my technique was not good enough. So did people respect you because you weren't good at the detail work? 50-50. I think by the end, it settled in after a year. But at the beginning, like what were the conversations you had with people? I mean, being a foreigner, I've been a foreigner for more than 25 years. I I think that that never goes out of style. 
I think you always need to prove yourself when you arrive in a foreign place. That's true anywhere. I guess I want to know how you felt in the moment. So maybe someone who's entering these kitchens doesn't like feels like their emotions are not yeah. valid. Like it's oh, like, I understand. I think now there has been a big movement to avoid these kind of emotions arising in kitchens. So like low work hours, low stress and good quality of life has become a main driving point, which is really, really great. So I'm not sure how relevant that experience is currently, but from my side, I would say that the nice thing about being somewhere where you don't speak the language well is that, again, just like in Paris or in, in Florence, it just becomes noise. It's just noise. And it's actually much more relaxing. Like if you, you can be disapproved of, but if you don't exactly understand what or why, then it's a lot easier. I think it's normal to go somewhere. I mean, this is not something I have with perspective. I still go new places and I'm viewed at with suspicion and have to prove myself either to myself or others all the time. And I'm very comfortable with that. As long as it's about the work, I think that's something I just want to be very clear about. It's not about being personal or how you look or anything or, or what you believe in. It's just about the work. Was there a moment or a conversation you had or like some time that maybe you didn't get the detail work right? Like, does, is there anything? That... I mean, infinite. I, I could tell you a thousand, thousands of them. You tell me one. I don't think I microwaved the honey containers to get the last drop out of the corner of the honey jar, which again, if you're doing like a hundred jars of honey is a lot of honey because we had a caramelized honey jelly on the petit four tray. So we'd go through like a lot of jars of honey every day. So I, I, I know that I was like, uh, it was brought to my attention that it was wasteful. What do you remember? How was it brought to your attention? Just like that someone would need to be very rich to not scrape out the corners of the honey jars. It, again, you're, it's like under a pressurized environment, you don't need to be like loud or violent, you know, like their pressure is adequate. Uh, and also if you're working with people who are there with you shoulder to shoulder, working their asses off, like those kind of comments are just part of the job. So do you feel like it didn't affect you? Like any comment that came your way, you were just like emotionally fine. I'm not sure at the time. I mean, I was young. I just don't remember feeling comfortable that, again, it's like, again, what is now referred to as imposter syndrome. I don't remember feeling comfortable until I settled in that it was a good place for me to be working. But, but again, I think at a certain point, I probably would have walked away had I not had like some good advice to stay. What was the advice? Don't walk away. <laughs> Who said that to you? <laughs> one of my friends, Casper, who's still, still one of my good friends. Why did you say that? It's just like, you can, you'll be, this will be over soon and you'll be doing something else anyway. And it, you shouldn't be the kind of person who walks away because it's difficult. Did you almost walk away? Oh, always. I mean, I've almost walked, like this industry is about almost walking away and sticking it out. So I, I'm comfortable with that. What were the moments you almost walked away? Like, like what would build up? Oh, I don't know. This was probably something to do with the apartment. Like it's never big things that make you want to walk away. Like I'm never someone it who feels does. big in the moment, doesn't it? Yeah. But like, again, the big things don't get to me. Still, actually, I'm sure it was something about a uh, like roommate or the apartment not being clean, something stupid that I can't place because there, and that's why I, it's not my lack of interest in sharing another anecdote. It's that those moments where the things boil over tend to be very mundane. It's more that there is a pressurized environment. And then that last little, you know, that last little straw is like, right. That's sort of the expression. So El Bully like felt like the dream. Why did you leave to go to Australia? Well, again, in the old universe, if you wanted to learn something, you had to go. So you couldn't like there was this idea that it was very, very foreign. And I to that point, I'd been really happy that I kept moving, kept finding new things, kept seeing what was out there because that was the way to acquire information. And I was always very comfortable in that world, like go learn something else. And then that what makes were you trying to learn in Australia. 
Well, there was another like legendary chef there. Again, legendary chef who you couldn't see their food. You couldn't taste their food. You couldn't meet them. You know, there was no chef circuit back then. So if you wanted to go, you had to go. And was that Chef Chong Liu? Yeah, that's right. In uh, Adelaide at the Grange in the Hilton in Adelaide. What did you want to learn? Well, first, I just wanted to meet him and see what his food was like. And he was a great guy. He took really good care of me. But yeah, that was a weird job. I showed up in Adelaide in the middle of the night and had nowhere to stay. And he was away. And yeah, I bounced around for a bit in Adelaide until he got back. It seems like so much is just... Un- I mean, like you have the food part down, but so much of the other stuff just seems so uncertain. Like... Was all of that destabilizing in any way, or did you just feel so much stability and this is? Oh, no, what no, I it was do. all very destabilizing. I think after five years, I was just ready to. I needed some stability around 99, 2000. I mean, still, I think I could use some stability, but most of it, it it's, one, it's again, it's one of those things. It was very unstable, it was very uncertain, and it was always okay until the very end. And then, for whatever like st- stupid thing must have set me off at the very end. When I was in Australia, I was like, I just need to go home and have an apartment and be like a normal, boring person for a while. It seems like every time you want to, you, you say that you're going to be a normal, boring person, then you just... It doesn't, doesn't, always, doesn't always work out very well. This yeah. is a very uh, like Michael Corleone kind of industry. So, I mean, I still feel that way now. Uh, and usually that is more of a reset just to like stop worrying about stupid things and then worry, try to reset what the stupid thing was that made you leave Australia. The guy, it was just like guys looking for drugs during service. It was just like what? weird, just really? weird stuff in the kitchen. No, like not like looking to use, like trying to find something that somebody lost. It was just stupid stuff. And it was just like, what the fuck am I doing here? This doesn't really make any sense. Like it, it didn't feel mature that environment. You have like little moments where you just say, well, what, what, why am I, what am I doing here again? What were you working towards? I mean, at the time I was in the third year of cooking. So I was just cooking. I mean, I was trying to learn how to cook. So I was trying to learn more stuff. I mean, I'm still, I'm still trying to learn more stuff, but at the time I knew even less than I know now. So that drug thing that made you leave Australia. Like what I mean is it just, it was like a nothing incident. I know that's not dramatic for narrative, but like the break is always a nothing incident. You know, like it's the stuff that builds up. At that point, I'd been on the road for five years. I was in a fifth different country. I'd been, I was totally broke. I had no ticket out. You know, like I was, I mean, I was in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Why were you so broke? I mean, I didn't have any money when I went to Australia. So by the end of my time in Australia, I still didn't have any money. You weren't being paid? Uh, I was being paid. I worked construction at first on a dig site, like demoing houses. Well, construction in a day and fine dining in the night. To feel like you were living a double life? Yes. Except same pets because I only had my chef pants. But again, restaurants are like that. You need another job to pay for your job. But at the time, it was just like, what the fuck am I doing here? It doesn't make any sense. So you went back to New York where you knew you could make money. Well, yeah, it's a little expensive, but I figured I could work there. And you needed to find a place to live. So how did you do like roommate interviews? I just don't, I got it. I know this is weird, but over like 30 plus years of running around, there's a couple of like moments where I just do not really remember. I remember the end of 2001 because I was working in a restaurant in New York. Do you remember how you met your wife? Yes. I was looking for a roommate in October, 2001. And I answered an ad in the village voice and that my wife was the eighth person to interview me. How did she interview you? (laughs) She was sitting on the fridge of the kitchen of the restaurant I was working in while I was in service making uh, desserts. Yeah. So that's 23 years ago. Do you remember thinking anything of the conversation when? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still think the same thing I think now. So I'm. What is that? 
I didn't have any doubt then or now. So that was one, one shot, uh, everything over. I still feel exactly the same 23 years later. So I want to go up to the point. I mean, you did a, a bunch of different jobs, but I want to skip ahead to creating Room for Dessert in 2006, the New York edition. How did you decide to do that? Why did you feel like you were ready to create this? I was just tired of working in restaurants and, and not having my own space. I've always liked to have the illusion of control. Uh, and pastry-wise, that doesn't really exist because there's no very, very few dessert restaurants because economically, they just don't make a heck of a lot of sense. But I really wanted to do something and I had a chance to do it and I left a very well-paying job. Yeah, I probably took a quarter of the pay. What were you making before then? I don't know, but it was comfortable for a young person. And then I was a lot less, but I had my own restaurants. Were you well known at that point? Like, were you getting a little notoriety or were you relatively unknown? I mean, I've always had a bit of both, like attention, positive or negative. I'm always, I have actually believed in that in general, which is sort of being newsworthy is better than not, as long as it's for the work. I'd already been in Europe. I'd already been at the best restaurant in the world. I'd already been in the newspapers from 97, 2001, 2002, 2004, with a few, you know, few hiccups in the middle. Uh, I don't think I was well known. I think New York is good about sort of like banging you up until you stick around long enough that people realize you're going to stick around and then everyone's ready for you to be a success. At least that's how it worked out for me. What was it like? Like, what was the dessert bar like? How did it actually come to be? Like, did you have investors? Yeah, we had a couple of investors. Um, but I mean, it was a tiny project dollar wise. But yeah, it was a huge project for me. It was an amazing experience and it was a lot of fun. And it gave me a platform to work and do things and sort of share what I, I mean, basically the same things that we're doing now. Try to show people a good time, make some dessert, serve some drinks. Was there a different way that you ran the restaurant? I don't think I ran the restaurant particularly well, but also this is like a very, very small place with me and a couple of people. So it was a very small team. But it had high impact because you would win the James Beard nomination for best pastry chef in America. Like that's huge. I didn't win, I but I did get nominated. Nomination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, no, it had high impact because we were doing really nice stuff in a fun, approachable way. I mean, you could come and have something great for six bucks, for nine bucks. I mean, I still think that's hard to do. How did that nomination feel? Well, at the time I was more concerned that I lost. So I didn't enjoy that I'd been nominated. Really? Yeah, I was very disappointed. I've been lucky to be awarded some things recently that are good. So I try not to worry about the things that were not as good, but I definitely didn't enjoy not winning. I talked to like Thomas Keller outside and he was, he basically said, you win when you're nominated, not by getting the award, which was good advice. But again, coming from someone who's won a lot of things themselves. <laughs> but I, I mean, he's always been someone that I've looked up to a lot. And not long after that, what happened to Room for Dessert? Around spring 2007, it became clear that our partners and I, like we just, there's just too small of a house for like multiple interests. Uh, there just wasn't enough going on. And I think we both handled it pretty badly. What happened? We agreed to sort of make a deal to move on, but we weren't able to resolve it. It just didn't make any sense. To be honest, it was a colossal waste of time and resources. Uh, and we both ended up without the restaurant. And so the restaurant just died there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it rested for seven years before we brought it back to life here. But how did it feel to let it lay it to rest? Well, I consider it still open, uh, open item. So at the time I, I, in 2007, you considered it? No, currently I consider it still unresolved. But at the time in 2007, when like you, you had a disagreement with your partners and didn't agree and the New York location closed down, right? How did that feel? 
Yeah, very, very bad. Like I said, it took a very long time to get over it. I still don't consider it resolved in the sense that I would still love to go back and work in the original location. But I've exercised the demons by opening here and it's been, a, I've been lucky. But I, yeah, I really, it was uh, devastating. And then like I, you had the sandwich kiosk and battery park and the dessert studio and ABC Carpenter Home. Did that feel at all the same as what you had? No, I mean, the sandwich kiosk was something we did actually. I mean, it's ironic that it's almost exactly the same thing we did as a pop-up during the pandemic here in Bali. Dessert studio was more of a band-aid, but I mean, again, it's like you need to, you know, you need a job. There's no, no, you don't make better desserts sitting at home waiting for something to happen. So, so when did you decide to move to Bali? 2008. So right then. What was the decision like that? Why did you do that? Uh, We were just tired of being in New York. Like it was, I mean, New York is great if when things are going well and if they're not, then it's like, what are you doing there? Yeah. It's like a city of dreams. And if your dreams are dying, then why are you there? Well, yeah, hopefully not dying, but yeah, it just didn't seem the right time for our family to like start again. So we thought it was better to start fresh. How did Bali feel when you were here? Great. Still great. Been 15 years. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Did it feel like a place that you could make room for dessert? Like resurrected? Yes. Uh, at the time. I mean, we're just missing a few things. What were you missing? Money. Money <laughs> and time. Yeah. It's important when you don't have it, but... Yeah, I, I took a minute to get organized, get comfortable. So in the end, I think it was, we'd been in Bali five years before we started making the plans. Were you excited? Yeah, I was nervous. I was excited. I was a lot older. And you're also pouring your own savings into it. Fortunately, I never have accumulated an awful lot of savings. So it's easy to dispose of them very quickly. <laughs> what was it like to eventually open? It took like years to acquire the land. And I imagine creating a, bo- a business in Bali as a foreigner is no easy task. I mean, we still rent. We haven't taken anybody's land yet, but the took a few months to get situated. And I mean, again, we opened on a total shoestring. Opening a business here is pretty straightforward. But again, opening any business anywhere without any money is a bit of a challenge. But I think it kind of gave us some of our unique charm. And what was the reception when you opened? I mean, pretty flat. It's a quiet street. We were serving desserts and cocktails at midnight. I mean, the streets are empty. So it's a, it's an, we're an acquired taste. But it seems like in 2018, when you got invited to come on Chef's Table, how did things change? Well, we'd been building. At that point, we'd been open for five years. We'd sort of been building steadily. We had a good customer base. But obviously, I mean, Chef's Table was like a huge, amazing impact on the restaurant and kind of allowed us to keep going in new directions. You know, whether it's the restaurant that you ate in last night or the shop that we're sitting in now or the rooms that were coming ahead, it's... Was there like a before and after chef's table kind of like moment? Like, did it massively change? Yeah. I mean, I think for in every way, again, it is nice to be like, you don't work for validation, but it is nice to receive it from time. So it just, to, if you're like working alone in a void and then all of a sudden it becomes good, that's really good. So and it's I, like one of those, the biggest programs in the world. I mean, now people like, like all of the world, I mean, they kind of probably knew a little bit before, but now all of the world know who you are and what you make. Yeah, it's a very humbling experience. It's been an amazing experience to have something so widely shared and also so well done. You know, that's a rare combo to be like popular and of quality. It's really been great. I mean, it's been uh, it's been an amazing ride, you know. So where are things today? Well, we're sitting above our new shop, you know, which features all of our candies at the powder room. We're in a test kitchen down the corridor from an office, the, the first office I've ever had, which is quite amazing. We've got a new tree nursery in the back for our forest program. 
and we're building a new staff canteen. We're giving away, you know, that tens of thousands of meals to the community. We've got a uh, beautiful gardens. We've got new properties that we have not built or added concrete to the Balinese environment, but we've repurposed and reused and upcycled into these sort of dramatic new spaces. We start teaching for our academy next Monday, and soon we'll have rooms for people to stay and sort of join us for experiences and visit Bali with us. And we're trying to put ourselves in position just to get show people more of a great time and help show the things that we care about to as many people as we can. Doing what you do isn't easy. Like, I mean, just going through everything that we talked about, like there was like a lot of struggle. Like this is not the career that you take to make money. It's not a career that you take even to get notoriety, even though I'm sure you've made money and gotten notoriety at this point. But why are you doing this? I have a great team of people that I love working with every day when I come in. And we have really wonderful people in the community that I get a lot of joy out of taking care of every day. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of the creative side, which is a really good combination. I've got like meaningful contribution to the community with building our own family here. Something that was really cool about seeing you last night is like you like joking with the staff, you really being involved in the education on the job, like seeing you, you know, showing some techniques with like a torch to one of the chefs that works for you. It really feels like you care about each part of the process. I mean, look, I'm old. I know when to be a coach and not a player, but I'm, I like to participate and I like to share. And I get much more satisfaction from the success and the careers we're helping to build for our staff than from anything that I've gotten, uh, material or otherwise. I mean, you know, it's a, it's definitely been an extraordinary ride. So I'm just hoping I can keep it going for another, let's see, let's start with 10 years, but hopefully a few more 10 years. So you are world renowned as one of the best pastry chefs in the world. And I'm sure there are a fair amount of people that look up to you and say, I want to be like Will. If someone says that, what would be your advice to them. I think they should find another another role model. Why? I mean, it seems like everything you described about how you operate room for dessert, how you treat your staff, how you think about creativity and your art form. I mean, I, I feel like I'm in a science lab right now. I don't know. I imagine this is all you experimenting with this, but it's just like you can see the passion just oozing out of every action that you take, every room that you're in. It seems like you are creatively fulfilled in doing something you love and doing it with people that you love. And so why would you say that? Oh, I just know what it costs. There are a lot of wonderful experiences that I've taken from like suffering, which I wouldn't recommend, even if I'm glad I went through them myself. So I really like it. Uh, I love where I am. I have no problem to support people along their way. I would just, I always like to get the warnings out of the way first. It's like an advisory warning. What is the cost? Everything else. Everything else. That's the cost. I mean, that's what it costs. Everything else. So if you're comfortable with that exchange, then it's a good career. I'm hesitant to accept that price. I'm hesitant and I'm certainly not the kind of person who will recommend others to take that on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Ray, Josie Yo, Matt Fernandez, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez. 
with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersma, and Yao Wu. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.